0: Listen to more episodes of this podcast earlier than everybody else and add free when you sign up for Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service that's audience-supported, featuring more than 130 top-tier educational creators focusing on making content for you and not for an algorithm. Sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversationswithjoe to support the podcast and get more eye-opening content. This video is brought to you by Audible. The world was introduced to nuclear energy on July 16, 1945, in a very subtle way. See if you can spot it. And its popularity would only go down after that. Now, actually, Americans were super psyched about nuclear energy right after the war, even though we did just, you know melt hundreds of thousands of people with it but it did single-handedly end the worst war of all time at least that's what the guy on the news said this was the atomic age it was referenced everywhere in films and in design they actually had a science kit for kids where they could experiment with real uranium they actually had a miss atomic bomb pageant no it's not just a killer song Of course, it wasn't just about the bombs. This vast source of energy was now being used to power our homes. We had tapped into the fundamental power of the cosmos. This was a symbol of the future. So what happened? Today, only one-third of Americans want to continue producing nuclear power plants, and 49% of people have an unfavorable opinion of nuclear energy. Second only to coal. Obviously, there's a lot of blame to go around. There's the obvious, you know, correlation with nuclear weapons that seems to sort of hang over nuclear power all this time. There have been some high-profile accidents that have occurred in the intervening years. Plus, wind and solar have become really popular, and nuclear power is still really expensive. Nuclear power plants are massive projects that cost billions of dollars and take decades to build. And they have famously horrible hiring practices. But nuclear is going through something of a renaissance, with some new technologies on the way that could be a game changer. The idea of nuclear power began in the 1930s, when physicist Enrico Fermi first showed that neutrons could split atoms. Fermi led a team that in 1942 achieved the first nuclear chain reaction in a lab underneath the stadium of the University of Chicago, right next to Jimmy Hoffa's body. And then, just like the atom itself, nuclear research split into two different directions. One went into making bombs for the war effort, and the other went into actually creating nuclear power generation. And the U.S. government supported the R&D of nuclear energy both to improve our infrastructure, but let's also be honest, it was sort of a propaganda tool to get people behind the production of nuclear weapons. And it worked. The first public commercial nuclear power plant in the U.S. was the Shippingport Atomic Power Station, which was opened in 1958 by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. These first stations were publicly funded because private investors were a little too skittish with the nuclear technology to get invested in it. But there was a law passed called the Price Anderson Act that basically released investors of any liability in case of nuclear accidents. Which public funding of new technology is not that unusual in the early stages. I mean, we want innovation, right? But the investors weren't wrong to be concerned about nuclear accidents because as these power stations began to pop up around the world, well accidents happen. But the two biggies that did the most to change the public perception on nuclear power was the Three Mile Island incident in the U.S. and Chernobyl in the USSR. On March 28, 1979, a radiation leak occurred at the Three Mile Island Nuclear Generating Station near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. It was more of a scare than anything. Nobody was killed, but it was all caused by a simple mislabeled blinking light on a control panel that opened the wrong valve, released some water from the cooling pools, the fuel overheated, radioactive steam, that kind of thing. I'm leaving a lot out, obviously, but it scared the U.S. so much that it halted any production of new nuclear power plants until 2007. And yeah, Chernobyl happening seven years later didn't help. Chernobyl is still considered the deadliest nuclear accident of all time, with 29 deaths at the site itself, but it's estimated up to 4,000 people may have died of cancers in the area around the plant over the years since. It was also the most expensive, costing around $235 billion. It basically bankrupted the Soviet Union and was one of the major factors leading to its demise. It's one of only two events that have ranked a 7 on the International Nuclear Events Scale. Uh, Three Mile Island was the largest one in the U.S., and it only got up to 5. Chernobyl was a 7 on the scale, which is the highest that the scale goes. The only other event in history that made a 7 was Fukushima. But with the exception of a few high-profile incidents, nuclear energy is one of the safest forms of energy in the world. It's kind of like airplanes, right? Like, airplanes are by far the safest form of travel, but when something goes wrong, it goes, like spectacularly wrong. But humans aren't great at assessing risk, which is why people are afraid of flying even though you're far more likely to die in a crash on the way to the airport than actually on a plane. Similarly, while nuclear energy scares the bejesus out of some people, fossil fuel production and the pollution that comes with it kills up to 4 million people per year. That is three orders of magnitude more than all deaths from nuclear accidents combined. Every year. Even when you compare it on a per kilowatt basis, fossil fuels far outnumber that of nuclear. Nuclear is somewhere around like one death every 14 years. And I haven't even gotten into the whole point of nuclear, which is that it doesn't produce any carbon emissions, which is what we need right now. And I'm getting deja vu. I, I really think I've talked about this before. But I feel like i got to put this out there because every time you talk about nuclear energy, I mean, yeah, it's, it's got its problems. But the risks are dwarfed by its benefits. I mean, even when you compare it to solar, it's got its advantages. The largest solar farm in the world is the Badla Solar Park in India, which covers 57 square kilometers and produces 2,245 megawatts, coming out to about 39.38 megawatts per square kilometer. The Kashiwazaki Kariwa Nuclear Power Plant in Japan covers 4.2 square kilometers and produces 7,965 megawatts, 1,896.42 megawatts per square kilometer. A solar park would have to be 202 square kilometers to make that much energy. Over a map of Dallas, that would look like this all solar panels. And that's because uranium is extremely energy dense. Like coal, for example, has a density of about 25 megajoules per kilogram. Uranium, enriched uranium, is 83 million megajoules. That's more. So the real issues around nuclear are issues of cost and scalability. As I said at the beginning, nuclear power plants are huge projects. They take decades to build and cost billions of dollars. But there is another option on the horizon, and this is where we finally get to the point of this video. Small modular reactors. Have you ever wondered why, if nuclear power plants are so huge and expensive to make happen, like, how do we have nuclear submarines? That's because nuclear power can be done in small packages. And it's not like a new idea or anything. The United States military has been powering isolated bases with small nuclear reactors since the 1960s. Uh, Camp Century is a good example of that. Camp Century was this thing we did in Greenland. It's... That's a whole topic of its own. So at the end of the day, a nuclear reactor is basically just a giant tea kettle, and it boils water that creates steam that turns a turbine and makes energy. So small modular reactors are just basically smaller tea kettles, and they produce less energy, but you can link them together to create as much as you want. Think of it like batteries. If you want to power your house, you get a Tesla Powerwall, basically a a battery pack. If it's a big house, you get two Powerwalls. If you need to power the whole neighborhood, you get a mega-pack, which is a box filled with a bunch of packs, and if you want to power a city, you get a bunch of mega-packs. So, modular. The problem in the past was that if you wanted to create a nuclear power plant, you had to create a custom one-off solution that fit this one area's specific needs, and just like my custom Shrek TV, that gets expensive. But with small modular reactors, you can produce one type of reactor over and over and over again thousands of times, and the cost per unit goes down. You know, the way we make everything else in the world. It's the Model T of nuclear reactors. SMRs are defined as producing 300 megawatts or less, which is quite a bit less than the large-scale plant, which gets over 1,000 megawatts. There are, by the way, VSMRs, very small modular reactors that are 15 megawatts or smaller. And here's another advantage to SMRs, refueling. Yep, just like your car, nuclear plants do have to be refueled from time to time. And with these SMR-style reactors, all you have to do is just remove one modular reactor and replace it with the new one. And if that sounds wasteful, keep in mind that a large nuclear plant usually takes weeks of being offline for, uh, for the rods to cool down enough for them to replace it. And the less time that a plant is offline, the more money it can be making. And it's not like you have to replace them all the time or anything. Those, those very small modular reactors, some of those can last up to 20 years. So 20 years of production, that's, that's pretty good. But how can something as complex as nuclear energy be self-contained in that way? Turns out it's a pretty simple device. It's basically just valves and thermodynamics. The water that cools the reactor heats up and becomes steam. That steam is released into an outside container where it cools and condenses, then valves again flow the water in to cool the reactor all over again. So it's a soap-contained system that powers itself so there's less risk of pumps shutting off and the reactor melting down. And they can be made so small that they can literally be shipped in shipping containers. You can send up to 12 to a site, or more in some cases, and just build it up from there and make it as big as you want. So this potential is huge, which is why there's a lot of companies working on this. Like, Rolls-Royce is working on an SMR. There's more than 30 companies working on this right now and using different designs like molten salt reactors, sodium-cooled fast reactors, pressurized water reactors, liquid metal reactors, the list goes on. But there are three that have received funding from the Department of Energy, and those are TerraPower, X-Energy, and NuScale. In October of last year, 2020, grants of $80 million each were given to TerraPower and X-Energy uh, with the condition that they have an operational demonstrator plant up within seven years. I mean, $80 million for each? That's that's some pretty good money, but... Uh, what about this NuScale company? Oh, they got, uh, they got $1.4 billion. Yeah, that's more. So since the DOA has put so much faith in NewScale, let's take a look at what they're all about. is building an SMB 22 meters tall, which can work by itself or be scaled into groups of 12. One NewScale reactor can support up to 50 megawatts, but new estimates say 77 megawatts, allowing it to power 50,000 homes or 77,000 homes. And since you can leak up 12 reactors, that means it could scale up to 924,000 homes. And Scale is considered so safe that the protective zone really is just about the boundary of the site itself, which is about 40 acres. A typical power plant is more like 10 miles. This allows for the reactor to be far closer to population centers, which means there's less loss over the transmission lines. This is possible because of its advanced passive safety technology. It uses that same self-powering system that I was talking about earlier, but the extra advantage is that the fuel rods are actually held in place by electromagnets. This means when the core stops generating energy those electromagnets turn off the fuel rods fall down into a pool of cooling water and keeps it from melting down now there are some that have criticized the system saying that the type of water that they use light water might not be enough to stop a full-on meltdown but this is obviously still in development so we'll see how this goes although they may get beat by canadian nuclear laboratories who are building an smr demonstration plant that should open by 2026. And of course, China is plowing ahead with a 100-megawatt design called the ACP100 that should go into production this year. But for me, the big question is that by the time these SMRs get up and running, would the cost of solar and wind have gone down so low to make it unnecessary? The LCOE for nuclear, even with SMRs, is still higher than solar and wind, and solar is far more scalable than SMRs can be. For example, by 2026, solar's total system LCOE will be around $32.78 per megawatt-hour, and by 2050, it's estimated that nuclear energy will be around $60 per megawatt-hour. So like all things in this world, it's the economics that are going to decide whether or not SMRs become a thing, so we'll see how this plays out. Once upon a time, we dreamed of a world where everything was run by tiny nuclear reactors tapping into that fundamental force of the universe. That never quite panned out. But this idea of smaller, replaceable reactors powering everything kind of feels like we're coming full circle. Maybe we're getting a little bit closer to that Jetson's dream that we once all believed in. Of course, with those reactors comes with the giant elephant in the room, nuclear waste, which we're going to talk about in the next video, so tune in Thursday for that one. So today's video is supported by Audible, and Audible has a lot of audiobooks on this topic, on nuclear technology and whatnot, if you want to go take a a deeper dive on it. But I wanted to recommend the book Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. And you might be thinking, Joe, why would you end a video on better, newer nuclear technology by talking about the biggest nuclear disaster of all time? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, to show how much technology has evolved since that accident. And two, because one of the big lessons in this book is that Chernobyl was a failure of institutions, not technology. In the book, he retells a history of the Soviet nuclear program and how it led to the disaster at Chernobyl and how nepotism and mismanagement and politicking laid the stage for all of that. He spent two decades interviewing survivors and pieces it together into a narrative that just grabs you from the first page. It's a fascinating story, and I know this, because my wife has the book and read it and could not stop talking about it for weeks. And she doesn't even like nonfiction. Audible is, of course, the leading provider of audiobooks, featuring everything from new releases to science fiction, nonfiction, suspense thrillers, you know all that, but it's also got original content from celebrity creators and podcasts as well. Audible members get a credit every month that's good for any title in their premium selection, but you also get full access to their Plus catalog that includes guided fitness and meditation, ad-free versions of shows and exclusive series, and lots more. Pretty much anything you'd ever want to listen to, all in one app. And right now, Audible's got a new summer deal where Amazon Prime members can save 53% on four months of Audible, which comes out to only $6.95 per month, which is pretty amazing. If you want to give it a try, just go to audiblecom Joe Scott and get a jump start on your summer reading. And I've included a handy link down below. Big thanks to Audible for supporting this video and a huge shout out to the Answer Files on Patreon and the channel members that are financially supporting this channel and helping me grow a team doing awesome stuff. I've got some new members I want to shout out real quick. We've got Need to Know Basis. Cool name, Jackie S. Wreckage Writer, Mama Kanu, Deandra shalon Deben, <laughs> Jorge Antonio San Martin Pina. We got some Hispanic people here. We got uh, Edwin Reinalt, Jimmy Chevry, Jonathan Drolet, Vikram Verna, Sandra E. W. Morganroth, Megan Evans, Sammy Joe, Craig Matt Cooper, Tom Swift, uh, Daryl Fang Feingold, Adam and Kenneth Hawthorne. <sighs> got it all out. Uh, Thank you guys so much. If you would like to join them, get early access to videos as well as exclusive live streams. Also, you get a little badge next to your name when you comment down below. Uh, Just uh, hit the little join button right at the bottom of the screen. That's all you gotta do. Please do like and share this video if you liked it. And if this is your first time here, Google thinks you'll like this one, so you might want to check that one out or any of the others with my face on them. And if you like them, I invite you to subscribe. I come back with videos every Monday. All right, that's it for now. You guys go out there. Have an eye opening rest of the week. Stay safe. And I'll see you next Monday. Actually, Thursday. I've got a video coming out this Thursday. I'll see you then. (laughs) Love you guys. Take care.